When a child is diagnosed with a serious, life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. In this episode, Amy and Ray Miller join CPN's Jennifer Seidman to talk about first years grieving the loss of their son, Dan, who had Hunter's Syndrome. They explore their identity as parents, being happy again, and surrounding Dan with love, family, and friends during his final days. We're Amy and Ray Miller. We're from Pennsylvania. We have two children. Haley is 24. She's a special ed teacher and Dan would be 22, and he passed away in January of 2016 from Hunter Syndrome. I'm a nurse. I actually now work full-time at the hospital we were cared for with Dan. I'm in healthcare IT, so I actually design the computer systems that they use in the hospital. I work primarily with patients who have had orthopedic surgery and need rehab, so we do get some MPS kids, a lot of Morpheo kids, and every now and then we'll get a different type of MPS. I, I love I love what I do. I love the kids, I love the families, and because our kids stay for a period of time, especially if they're rehabbing for maybe weeks to a couple months, we really get to know them. Do you think that being around children with challenges is a way to help hold on to your son? I think probably. Yeah, I gravitate to the medically complex kids, the developmentally challenged kids more than a typical child. Like as far as, it, sometimes we can sign up to be primary nurses and they're the kids that I sign up to be the primaries with, it seems. So I do think it probably, I always say it's a way to continue his legacy, me being there. Maybe that is holding on to him in certain ways. Well, the things I would, I would share about Dan is his younger years, happiest kid I've ever seen. His smile, his belly roll, SpongeBob. All he had to do was put SpongeBob on, and halfway through the, the introductory song, and the belly roll came out, and it was just, it was electric. It was just, you couldn't help but just start laughing with him. Later, it was being able to, to sit with him when he finally started to settle down a little bit, and he's sitting next to me and just hanging out and still happy. I mean, I was, the thing I always remember is he just, he was just a happy kid. You know, he just, he, he loved life. And we gave him a really, really full life. We chose right from probably six months after diagnosis, attended our first MPS family day. And those first six months was like a fog. You, we didn't know how we were going, he was four, Haley was six. How are we going to continue to live? with the diagnosis and I think when we first met those families and saw that they were it was a big changing point and from that point on we wanted to give both our kids the best life they could have. We never wanted Haley to grow up and say I couldn't do that when I was younger because of my brother. We just did it. We included him in everything and and his young years were really hard you know because he was so active. It was hard to take him places. It was. <laughs> You know, it was a challenge, but I feel like 
for our family, that's just how we handled it, yeah. to, to give them both the fullest, biggest life they could we have. We tried very hard never to say no. If you yeah. want to do something, you want to go to Hershey Park? Okay, we're going to Hershey Park. You want to like, go camping in a we'll tent? We'll go camping. <laughs> with the suction machine and the oxygen yep. and keep it away from the campfire. And, <laughs> you know, we yeah. have feeding pumps and suction mm -hmm. plugged into the hookup at the campsite. You know, we did that. That was just what we did. And he was a really big part of our family. Like, both of our kids were, mm -hmm. were just such. And the love that our daughter had for him was just it was amazing like I always said she loved him fiercely and she still does and she she uses everything that he taught her to be the teacher she is now we worked really closely with palliative care Dan was the first outpatient palliative care patient at the hospital the very first meeting I had with the one ICU doctor and you weren't there with me because we I was at the hospital for an infusion and my mom stayed with Dan and I went and spoke to this doctor and the social worker, and he said, what do you want the end of his life to look like? Dan was probably about 15 then, and he passed when he was 19, and we always tried so hard to give him his best quality of life while he's living, that when that time comes, we want him to have that same quality while he's dying. When Dan passed away, or when he got sick at the end, and we went in the hospital that last time. After three or four days of trying to figure out what was going on, it became kind of clear to us that he was telling us that he was tired and ready. And with discussions with the doctors, we chose end-of-life care. We could have made other choices to keep him alive, probably. We felt like it would have been selfish for us to do. He had started having other issues from the involvement of his brain where it was kind of shutting down his gut and his ability to process his tube feeds and so we chose end of life and we were trying I said when did we really know that we needed that choice but I, we feel like Dan told us that choice that he let us know that he was tired and ready so we had 12 days on end of life care in the hospital we chose to stay in the hospital. They asked us if we wanted to go home, and my fear was he would not survive the ride home in an ambulance, and I did not want him to die in the ambulance with just me. We would have probably been with him. And one of the nurses said this, and I thought it was a very poignant thing to say. She said, if you stay here, we can take care of him, and you can just love him. But if you go home, you're going to be working and taking care of him. And you won't have the chance to just love him. So between what Haley's saying, that she didn't want to take him home, and those things, we decided to stay in the hospital and made those decisions at the end of his life, which were hard decisions, but we just felt like we knew it was the right thing. And all three of us, we included her very fully in the discussion. She was 21. It was her Christmas break of her senior year of college, and he got sick on New Year's Eve, and he passed on January 16th. But we needed to all know that we all felt the same way, and thankfully we did, because that would have been really difficult. I, I wonder what would have happened if she said, no, we can't let him go. But we all yep. knew 
then it would just be only for us to keep them here and not let them go. We talked about that too after the decision was made. It was almost this weight was off our shoulders. For the next 12 days, we, we surrounded just, him with love. We heard from more than one doctor walking into the room. They're just like, it was uplifting. It was like, you know, we're in there. We had people nonstop in the room, and it was not it was not a death watch. It was telling stories. It was laughing. His neurologist said that. He's telling us mm -hmm. what he wants to do. They took him off of BiPAP just to see how he did with, like, the high flow oxygen, and right away he started having a lot of trouble. And he said he's telling us, and it's strange. Like, we had all these visitors and people coming, and they got us a big bed, and one of the things that I still think about and smile, it made me so happy, is people just climbed in bed with him yeah. and laid down his nurses from home, his family members, you know, his cousins, just, like, teachers, just, can I lay with them? Like, just snuggled up to him. But I never worried that he would take his last breath when the room was full of people. I always knew it was going to be in the night when it was just us. And sometimes, like, our whole family was in that bed. Haley across the foot, Ray and I on the half of the mattress on the side rails with pillows, Dan in the middle, and the nurses just worked around us. Mm -hmm. And I, I just I just knew when it was going to be, and it was. It was about 5 in the morning, and it was just us and his one nurse who became like family to us that were there. We never left for the 16 days. The, the three of us stayed right there. We never went home, we had people bring us stuff from home and we turned that room into home. We had his favorite things there, we had pictures people were sending us, like like the whole one wall was full of pictures, which we actually put all in a photo album and brought it here to show people. We called it his wall of love. Our dogs came in, they let us bring the dogs in and they got in bed with him. It was what was right for our family. It was not that it was easy, it was hard. and. And there was, there was a lot of tears, but sometimes there was a lot of laughter and, and yeah. people just remembering and mm -hmm. talking. And, and I just hope he was laying there able to soak it all in and hear it all, and I think he did. It's, it's hard to make the end-of-life decisions. And we never thought we'd have to do that. We always thought he would pass away at home. We never, ever imagined yeah. having to no. make those decisions. For families are going through this. The one thing we were not, a, no one ever really makes you aware of is when you make that decision to go to end of life care, it was not an easy process. I mean, we was at a two-hour meeting with the doctors, running through every med, every treatment, everything that you could possibly be on. Do you want to continue this? You don't want to continue yeah. this. This is what will happen. Yeah. I remember we kept oxygen for a while. I felt like, how could we not give him oxygen? And one of the doctors said, we could keep him comfortable with the morphine instead of the oxygen. And you could see his whole beautiful face. Mm. And it was like, okay. So even though we made a bunch of decisions that first day, yeah. as time went on, we changed things a little mm. bit. And I remember one morning both Ray and I woke up because it had been like a good week, a week. or more. Yeah. And our first thought was, are we doing the right thing? Is he telling us he wants to stay? Because he's still here. 
but we knew we were doing the right thing and we knew it was right for him because his quality would have really not been good if we had put him on TPN and kept him going to give us a little more time. And I just remember one of the doctors saying that he had a 19-year-old heart and it took time for it to stop. In many ways, he's already gone, but his heart, it's like a machine and it's just gonna take time to stop. And that brought me a lot of comfort. What's the thing about your journey with your child that you're most proud of? What you feel is the biggest accomplishment of that time period? What I would say I'm most proud of is who we became because of him and who Haley became because of him. You know, there could have been times where she was frustrated or angry or felt like she wasn't getting as much attention, but I don't think that she ever felt that way too often because that was our normal, like he was our normal and we just lived life like it, you know, it was just what we did and we became advocates, did a lot of fundraising, we still continue to do lectures for doctors and that we can continue to do that stuff now even after losing him, that's, that's what his legacy yeah. is. We were able to redefine the norm. We would go to neighborhood parties and you know, you would sit there and try to have a conversation with the other parents. It's like, you know, the biggest concern in your life is that the softball coach wouldn't play my daughter today. I'm like, really? My child is like dying, I'm like, uh, you know, but you don't, you don't bring it up. You just like, you, you listen, it's like, yeah, that's a big deal. It's like, oh, my child's not playing softball. But that was fine. It was like, you know, it was, it was accepting that that was their norm, this is our norm, and it's okay. It was, it was okay to do that, and it's okay to interact with them. It's okay to accept. It's like, your biggest concern is the softball coach. That's great. It's like, you know, our biggest concern is neurology next week. But, you know, it's just, it's different. And, and we've had neighbors say that. It's like, you know, you made it look so easy. It's like, it wasn't easy, but we just accepted the challenge, accepted who he was and what he could do. And it wasn't more than that. It wasn't less than that. It was just, this is life. Live life to the fullest. That was our goal. We're not going to stay at home and lock the door and say, you know, our child can't go out. We got to keep him in the bubble. You know, we're going to take him out. We're going to do everything we can possibly do and enjoy it. And, you know, I think that was... In my mind, our greatest accomplishment, I've often said this, no regrets. Do I miss them? Every day. But no regrets. It's like, you know, we lived life mm -hmm. as long as we could. I want to ask you both how you feel about that, what it feels like to still be an other, but in the bereaved space, is it more challenging or less challenging? I think it's more challenging. I do. Yeah. I don't even know why I say that, but I think because he's not here, so people mm -hmm. don't see what, you know, when he was here, they saw our challenges, but now he's not here, so they can't see what's going on on the inside and the challenges there. That's what I would think. Yeah, I would agree. I, yeah. When he was alive, even though, you know, we couldn't necessarily interact with the conversations, we're still part of them. And, and now it's just, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a little bit different. I mean, you still, you partake, but you, you can't 
you can't really interject necessarily what you're feeling. It's not appropriate to be at a cocktail party and say, man, I feel a little sad today because my son died. It's like, you, you don't, that's, you know, you, you just move to other topics. and yeah. The first year, you're just getting through all the first. And this, even like, you know, when the second year comes about, you're still like, well, I made it through the first. But then I think the longer it goes, it's hard in a different way because you realize how long it's been. When we hit the three year, I'm like, it's been over a thousand days since we've seen him and held him and touched him. My brother has two boys that are twins, the same age, two months older than Dan. And when they graduated college, and, and Dan would have never graduated college, but it was so much harder because now this next phase of their life was starting. And like, it didn't bother me when our daughter graduated college. Of course, that was in that first year that that happened. That was six months after he died or four months after he died. But I don't know, I, I think the longer it goes and that this third year has been harder. And it's really hard to pinpoint why. And I, I just think it's just that the, you realize the distance from when you've seen them last. It's just getting longer and longer. We just celebrated Ben's fifth year, and that for me felt like a huge milestone. It felt really big. I went through a long couple of months of anticipating that day. Yeah. And we talk a lot when our children are alive about anticipatory grief, right? How we feel sad mm -hmm. all the way through this very long yeah. timeline. Mm -hmm. And I found in my third year, I think, is when I started realizing the similarity between that kind of grief. Mm -hmm timelines of post-death grief because life goes on yeah how could life go on and we go on for this long without him yeah. you know what i mean we're finally starting to do stuff like we're, we've always wanted to travel you know we're starting to do that and i think that i, I know you've brought up a couple times it, it's almost feeling guilty it's like are we supposed yeah. to be happy yeah and it's like, there's no reason not to be, it's... And he wouldn't want us not no, to be. No, he wouldn't, no. and, but it's still, you know, it, it's not, we couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're able to do it, and now it's kind of like, oh, should, should we do it? Shouldn't we do it? And I think this is really the first year we started, started doing it, and I think that kind of brings up some of that emotion as well. And what do you think about the guilt that comes with bereavement? What would you say like, to somebody else who expressed it that way? That you shouldn't feel that way, is what I would tell them, but yeah. that I have felt that way too. I would say you can't, mm -hmm. but I know that I probably did the same thing yeah. too, you know, because you you think, how could people, are they looking at me and thinking, why are you smiling? Why? How can you be happy? How can you, you know, you lost a child. Like, like I guess you think you're in your head, there's people think you should just never be happy again but that's not realistic and that's not the life I want to have to never be happy again and I think the biggest tribute to him is to continue to live because if you can't like he wouldn't be happy with that I know that mm -hmm. he would be like mom and dad what are you doing like you need to, to you know keep living and that's and that's a tribute to his life. So we're not too far from Lancaster. 
and we have Amish very close, yeah. like a couple miles from us, and there was a little farm, and the gentleman there knew us well and knew Dan, and he said one of the most poignant things that anyone said to me after he died. He said to me, what a long, short life he had. And it was such a beautiful, simple, sweet sentiment. And I was like, you're right. Like, because we gave him this big, big, full life. It was short, but it was long because of everything he did. And you feel like that's helping you guys sustain yourselves. Yes, I do, definitely. Do you guys have any words of wisdom to help families continue to sustain that? Things that you do as a family, rituals that you practice, or things that... The fundraising, the awareness. We've done a recent lecture at the hospital you work at for... Uh, eight, eight, nine years, years. for the um, first residents, you know, and kind of our, our life experience. We do it with the geneticist who took care of Dan, and he gives the clinical background. We give the family background. And the biggest thing that, you know, I always feel good about is, and especially now that you're working there, is the residents come up and say, you know, that was, that, that lecture meant the most to us because it wasn't just a clinical lecture. It's a, lo- it's a lunchtime lecture. They have, you know, three or four a week, but it's, the one that the family comes in and talks, and it's one that sticks with them. He's not gone. We continue to talk about him. We laugh about him. We have tons and tons of stories that we bring up every family outing mm-hmm. we have, and he continues to, to live through you know, us just keeping him alive. One big hurdle that a lot of families that are newly bereaved struggle with is the first time that someone who's unknown to them says, how many children do you have? It's still a challenge. Yeah. I always say two. I always answer two, and depending on the circumstances, I share if that he's passed or not. It just depends. That happens to me a lot at work. Families will say, you know, oh, how many kids do you have? And, and I can usually tell the families that I want to share it with pretty immediately and the ones that I don't, you know, and then they'll say, how old? And then the challenge is, do you say how old he was when he died? and passed, or do you say how old he would be now? And that kind of ebbs and flows with what my answer is, too. It's a hard, it's a hard question. Someone asked me not that long ago, and I just talked about my daughter, and I felt really guilty about that. And I don't even know why I didn't bring him up. It was just at the lunch table at work. I just was thinking everyone there knew, so I didn't bring it up. And But afterwards, I was like, I should have told her about him, and I, I don't even know why I didn't. It's such a hard thing sometimes mm-hmm. to figure out the right thing to say. I agree. It's, um, it's still a challenge when people ask him. I do the same thing. I always say I have you know, two kids, and I, if they ask the ages, I tell them Haley's age, what Dan's age would be, and unless they pursue it further, I don't. I think the harder question is when they pursue and they say, well, what yeah. do they do? Yeah. Are they in college? Mm-hmm. That's a hard question, you know, or, oh, so he's 22, you're, you know, I'll say, oh, Haley's a teacher, so what's your son doing? And I'm like, he's home. Sometimes I'll just say that because he's home in heaven, you know. I think it's a coping mechanism in many ways. Like mm-hmm. today I'm willing to share mm-hmm. what my son is and was. And some days for me, I just want to hold on to every piece of it. And mm-hmm. I don't actually want to give you my little piece of Ben mm-hmm. today. That might have been what happened that day at the lunch table. Like, I just didn't want to 
get into it. it definitely, definitely depends on the person you're talking to, where you want to go and, and how far you want to go with it. I'm curious to know if you guys feel pressure to be different people because you live this extraordinarily different life. We were talking about that in the car. I don't think we're different people. We defined what our normal was. So we're not different. We're who we are. And there's another group of normal that meets ours, and there's a group that doesn't, and that's okay. It, I think that's what you brought up. It's like, you know, you're you're this incredible mother for taking care of us. like, no, I'm just a mom. And that's what I was supposed to do. And if you had to do it, you would figure a way to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, you know, when people say that, I'm just like, no. So I don't think we're different people. No. Our norm's just I different. I think, <laughs> our, yeah, and through the course of his life, the norm changed many times. And now this is a new norm. Mm -hmm. And someday when Haley gets married and has children, that'll be another new mm -hmm. norm. I don't think we feel like we need to be different people. I think no. we still tell his story and our story when we want to. And it's still the story. Yes. Yeah. Just another, another part of life. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.